Good evening, folks, and welcome back on this Saturday, the 18th day of November 2023, coming up on the holiday week of Thanksgiving. I'm your host, Mark Hall, and given that most of the news this week was, let's just be honest, downright stupid, we've gone beyond insane and to a place that no one probably ever really believed we could end up. So this evening, we're going to talk instead about something that's been on your host mind for a while now. And one of the reasons I uh, waited for a while to do it was because, well, it's a bit daunting. And uh, to some extent, there's a lot of inside baseball. But I hope you can bear with me. What I'm going to try to do is make a concept that is actually pretty straightforward, even more so. And uh, in the process, sort through a whole lot of, well, let's just call it bull you-know-what. The stuff that comes out of the back of a cow that essentially runs counter to what we're going to talk about. Thus, the problem, because it's ultimately anti-human life. Whether we're talking about climate change or limits to growth or the fact that the world is running out of renewable energy. And um, for that reason, we got to kill billions and billions of people. That's why I call it bovine you-know-what. Because ultimately, folks, I guess it's a disservice to cows to call it BS, as you know. Because what comes out of the back of the cow is actually useful. It's useful as fertilizer. It has some energy content. As opposed to what we're going to be discussing, which is exactly the opposite. It is deadly, and it is negative energy content, and its intent is to destroy the world. Now, part of the reason why I want to go through this today is because, uh, as always, there's a very practical aspect to something that, eh, at least for the first little while here, it's going to sound like it's uh, way, way out of the practical range, but wait a minute. The reason it is important is because this is what is driving the world, whether most people realize it or not. So, what we're going to talk about is energy. And a couple of concepts and some things that uh, might sound uh, daunting, but uh, we'll go through them. We'll go through them slowly. We're also going to go through some of the uh, counterpoint to them, and uh, we'll make it clear why this is so vital to understand. All right, the first one here is uh, the concept of uh, energy density. Now, this, to me as an engineer, is one of those things that when I saw it uh, many years ago, and I read some of the stories about it, and a couple things that are really uh, uh, I guess, additions to the general concept, I think you'll see how it explains so much of what's going on. But let's start with um, the nerdy part. I'll get this out of the way, and then we'll see how it applies. E-R-O-I, if you've ever heard it, you've heard of return on investment, right? Uh, anybody that's done stock market investing or charts or whatever. But this is energy return on investment, and it's energy return on the energy that's invested. The concepts is a, a story that uh, is one of many that I'm looking at here. was developed originally by Charles A. Hall in the 1980s as a way of comparing the values of different sources of energy. And essentially, it's defined as the number of energy units, uh, British thermal units, BTUs, or megajoules, or whatever, that you get back from a particular type of energy, as opposed to how much it costs you to uh, get it. Whether that means mile it, mine it, or drill it, or produce it, or build solar panels to get it from the sun, or uh, dig a well to get it from geothermal, it's energy out versus energy in. And, if you think about it, the higher the EROI, the better. And by the way, this is, and I'll say this up front because I've mentioned it a bunch of times, but this is a mathematical way of saying this is why uh, windmills and solar panels um, ultimately are losers for human society. And we'll come back to that. But essentially, if it costs more energy to make something, then you get back out of it over its useful lifetime. In other words, if that EROI number is uh, anywhere under one, it's an absolute loser. 
If it turns out that it's a little above one, well, it'll last, but it won't last for very long. Uh, if it's very high, then you can uh, use that energy source to be uh, literally the kind of thing that will build civilizations. And that's the key. That's why I'm talking about this. Uh, this is like profit margin, says one of the authors here, but it's a unit of energy measurement rather than some kind of, a, well, fake like dollars or even something real like silvers. Okay, since all economic activity, and here's the key, all economic activity requires either heat, energy in one form or another, or movement. People have to move in order to be able to plant crops. Animals have to move in order to be able to eat. Uh, at the very simple level, everything that we do is based on energy. And if you think about it, this is why I say it's so important to understand this in terms of human civilization. You can chart, and indeed, EROI is one of the ways that some pretty, uh, uh, I would say, brilliant economic thinkers have gone and looked at human history. You look at the amount of energy that a civilization produces and uses, and you'll see that it is directly proportional not just to the growth of the civilization and its population and its um, uh, standard of living. Call it what you want. There's a lot of ways of measuring various aspects, but ultimately it all depends on energy. And you can think of it this way in the most simple terms. If you have a hunter gatherer society, the kind of thing where people literally would get up in the morning and say, oh, okay, what are we going to do, Og, to get some food today? Well, uh, Og, go hunt um, buffalo or um, brontosaurus or whatever the case may be. And um, if it takes Og all day to get a, a buffalo or brontosaurus, well, maybe he learns to get together with other tribesmen and they hunt in groups if they want to bring down a brontosaurus or a big buffalo. The point is how much energy in terms of literally the things that they have to eat, the calories that they have to burn in order to get themselves the next buffalo, feed their wives and their families, if it's less than the buffalo produces and it takes them a long time to get that buffalo, that society is in a whole world of hurt. On the other hand, if it's a rich land, there's lots of game around and it's relatively easy to hunt, well, they can grow and they can get more bows and arrows and they got time to spend doing extra things like making better tools to harvest more buffalo. Eventually, they even realize, hey, if we can plant stuff and grow it here, that takes energy too. You got to till the soil and you got to have uh, some way of fertilizing it, maybe animals to do that. But ultimately, this is the beauty of the EROI concept, literally everything. Think about this. Everything that uh, that we produce, everything we make, everything we build, either comes from the soil or the land or from um, people. But one way or the other, it's things that come from the um, the natural resources we have, and that includes energy. And if we get more of it for less effort, for less total energy, in other words, we have a surplus. Well, any economist will tell you that's how economies grow. They build the surplus, they plow it back in, they produce more stuff, they have more people, bigger families, and they have a, uh, a better standard of living. So ultimately, this is the key, EROI is a really great way of measuring the entire productivity of a society. Now, you can also talk about it, and uh, the article I'm uh, looking at here is one of many that does, in terms of a particular fuel source as well, and uh, see exactly what kinds of fuel sources are most effective. Uh, for example, you go back through history, uh, biodiesel was one of the things they're talking about. How about oil, the kind of oil that we would grow on, say, an olive tree, or harvest that way, uh, tar sands, things that ancient peoples might have had access to. Uh, turns out those are relatively low, and that's not a surprise, right? 
terms of the EROI, somewhere between uh, a couple, maybe one or two to one, up to uh, five or ten to one, and then up to, um, in the case of tar sands, about ten to one. Uh, when we get to wind energy, it's a little higher. Um, depending, of course, on the source of the wind energy, you can go back and say, okay, um, and this is kind of fascinating. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but uh, look at the Netherlands, Holland. Most people think, oh, Holland, what do I think of? Well, you think of windmills, right? Go back and look at uh, history and ask yourself, uh, what kinds of things do we see that were based on wind and um, the, the value of wind and understanding it? Well, in the American plains, everybody's seen the pictures of a farmhouse with a little windmill up on top. What's the windmill doing? It's driving a long pipe that goes into the ground and it's pumping water. Now, the beauty of that is you can pump water whenever the wind blows, and you put it in a great big storage container. You don't have to have a battery like you do with a, a solar power system or, or uh, um, most of our electric energy sources today. You don't have to store it. You can just get it and pump when the, when the wind blows, or in the case of uh, nowadays with a, uh, a well that's driven by solar, you pump when the sun shines. You don't pump in the dark. If you look at wind and ask, uh, well, how, how did that impact human history? Well, think about it, folks. Remember the days of... Uh, Prehistoric times where boats were driven, uh, you know, the Romans, you can see uh, the, uh, the slave galleys and so forth. Uh, it was manpower, uh, rowers, right, driving the, uh, the great big galleons and, uh, and moving around with um, manpower. And usually that was slave manpower. Later on, we had what? Well, you remember this term, the trade winds. Uh, people discovered that if you uh, if you had winds blowing in the direction you wanted to go, you could get somewhere. You might have trouble getting home. Well, that's the beauty of a, a little bit more understanding. And they realized, hey, the winds blow at this latitude in one direction. At another latitude, they blow in the opposite direction. You can make kind of a circular path, and isn't that nice? We can trade all over the world with wind power. Uh, later on, there was another in, uh, invention that helped to change that, too. Any of us that have done sailing will know that a jib and a um, literally an airfoil kind of a sail would, uh, would enable us to not quite go into the wind, but you can, uh, as they say, tack upwind. And uh, that, too, was a major innovation in wind power. So the point here I'm making is when it comes to energy – and, for example, a sailboat, you know, a sailboat is a relatively high, like 30 to 1 energy return on investment because you make the sails. We can make them out of canvas or various kind of other things. Uh, you build the wood. We've got the wood. It grows. And when you've got this sailboat built, it'll travel for a long, long time, many years, as long as you don't get caught in a storm or something, and uh, travel on a long uh, uh, on wind and doesn't require any other fuel. So it's a relatively high EROI. Moving up to scale, firewood is also about 30 to 1. Uh, domestic oil, hydroelectric are all in the 40 to 1 range. And um, back in the 1930s when oil was really cheap and there was a lot of it that was discovered in places like uh, uh, first uh, Ohio and Pennsylvania and so forth. And then later on in Texas, well, domestic oil had 80 to 100 to 1 kinds of return on energy invested because there was a lot of oil and it was easy to get to. Uh, nuclear is another one that has a really high energy return on investment. That is, if you don't count certain costs, like what do you do with the spent fuel rods and so forth. So um, where I'm headed is the following. If you, if you look at this concept and ask yourself, well, what, is this, what does this tell us about the world? Energy return on investment. Well, you, you put your money where the better energy sources are. That is, if you want a society that is productive and is able to grow and to feed people and do the kinds of things that uh, growing societies need. It turns out that this uh, article I'm looking at has a really damning chart at the very end of it, and it has to do with population growth versus energy. And guess what, folks? Here's the question. Is it the cart that drives the horse or vice versa? 
Uh, turns out that population growth is not only proportional to, it's not a linear equation, it's literally exponential. Uh, because it's a growth thing. If, in fact, you have a lot of excess energy, guess what? You can have a lot of excess population growth. Now, oh, I see the problem, don't you? The Club of Rome and these other uh, climate change BS types, they realize that we don't want more people. We want to kill people. We got too many people, and I'll talk about that in a second. So how do you get rid of people? Answer. Kill the energy sources. You drive that curve in the opposite direction. You got seven billion people and lots of energy. What do you do? Destroy the energy and then the people are gonna just die off. Matter of fact, if you force them to have solar powers and windmill and say, oh, you can't have those, they're gonna die off that way too. As a matter of fact, if you're gonna go further and say, well, we need energy, natural gas, for example, to produce, uh, fertilizer, one of the most famous processes to produce fertilizer from natural gas. But we don't have any natural gas. Well, we don't have any fertilizer. Uh, people are going to starve that way, too. So there is a real hidden agenda here. And that is what, at least in part, I'm talking about and why we're, we're going to try to connect as many dots as we can on this energy thing today. Now, I want to mention a little bit more about some of the history because the, the history is really kind of interesting. Um, one of the other things you will notice, the Industrial Revolution – and you look back uh, prior on, it was driven by one of the big EROI things, coal. Coal, as it turns out, has a EROI that was better than anything else in human history up until oil was discovered at um, relatively easy-to-access places. So coal, uh, no wonder the Industrial Revolution was driven by King Coal. You see it in Pennsylvania and West Virginia. You certainly saw it in Britain. You go back and look at the history of Britain and so many things that come out of the uh, the British Isles. You'll see coal and uh, the Welsh coal miners. So much of history is wrapped up in that, not for good and for ill, because naturally the people that had the coal mines and could force the miners to work for substandard wages, and if they killed themselves, hey, we'll Get more where they came from. Still, it was extremely profitable, and it resulted in a huge increase in civilization and the standard of living. And um, I, uh, I hearken back as I was thinking about it. I would encourage you go read the story of Elisha and uh, the widow, and the uh, she had a bunch of debt. And uh, you know the uh, the miracle that the prophet performed was to say, "Okay, go out and get yourself as many uh, buckets and barrels and jugs as you can find." And he uh, allowed her to have access to a, uh, a jug of oil that just kept overflowing. And what they do, they poured the oil off and, and just kept pouring it off until they ran out of things to store it in. And then the miracle stopped, the oil stopped, and with the oil she was able to pour out of that one jug that the prophet provided for her miraculously, she paid off all of her debts and was able to uh, you know continue to live for quite a while which shows you the value of oil at that time. And this would have been probably almost certainly olive oil. But there are some other things that we want to mention today. Uh, for example, um, as I look at the um, breakdown of society and some of the things that I would suggest we're going to see here today, why and how are intended, there are certain tools that I encourage people to have. One is solar panels. Now, if I'm saying solar panels aren't necessarily the answer in terms of EROI, what is different when it comes to individuals? Answer, well, you can buy them today. You may not be able to buy them in 20 years, maybe not in two years, but at least for today, that solar panel will last for years. And you can go out and you can be well off grid and you can have access to power in a place where it's expensive to run copper wires and be on the power grid, which you don't want to be on anyway because it's going to go down. So there are things, in other words, that are expedient for uh, individuals and preparedness and survival that aren't necessarily good if a civilization bets the whole civilization on them. 
One of those other things that I encourage people to consider and be really uh, aware of, and it was one of the very first uh, tools that I purchased when we moved off grid, is a backhoe. Now, some people will say a tractor is a very useful device. I don't disagree. But if I could only have one piece of powered equipment, well, my decision was to have a backhoe. Because you can dig with it, you can dig trenches with it. It turns out if you uh, learn to use it, you can lift things with it. You can use the loader to lift bales of hay and uh, huge logs and uh, move huge piles of dirt. A backhoe, as it turns out, can do about 50 men's worth of work in a day. So let's say you want to dig something. It would take 50 men working hard all day, sweat off their brow, in order to dig what a backhoe can do in one day, along with some diesel fuel. No wonder they want to destroy diesel fuel, right? There's your domestic oil, high energy return on investment. So there are some things like this that, um, if we understand them, begin to explain a whole lot. Why are they destroying the diesel trucking industry? Why is diesel fuel the target of the Biden fuel? Why are they shutting down pipelines? Answer. The world moves on diesel. Tankers move diesel and are run by diesel. Right, The steam engine was a big deal that replaced wind, if you remember, um, back uh, 150, 200 years ago. But guess what? Now they're getting rid of all of that. So if, um, if they get rid of diesel fuel, a whole lot of things that literally, diesel is called the lifeblood of modern civilization, it goes away. It gets destroyed. So be aware that this is the goal. And as we go through some of the other elements here, you'll see why I'm talking about this and suggest that it indeed is, in fact, the goal. Um, let me look at the EROI article again. There are several things that this author points out. Uh, diminishing returns in energy is tied to diminishing returns in the economy. In other words, uh, you can see this on a... Um, even on a lifetime scale. Between 1945, post-Civil, um, or post-World War II era, to 73, the United States had a period of high EROI on domestic energy production, indeed global production, large energy surplus, result, high wages, widespread affluence, positive net investment position, and low debt. Turns out that so many things that you can say, oh, we'll look at them from a, an economic standpoint. Well, the energy return on investment also Maybe it's the driver. That's what I think is the, the point here. Post-oil spikes in the 1970s up to 2005, we see high EROI conventional oil production peak out. And instead, they had to shift to lower EROI offshore deep water developments. In other words, uh, think about it. It costs a lot more to drill an oil well at the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico. Huge amount of initial investment. Well, the resulting EROI, if you've got boats out there and deep sea drilling and rigs and helicopters flying out to it and all kinds of heavy pipeline that has to be sunk thousands of feet into the ground and under the water, no wonder it's expensive. The EROI goes very down. That's expensive. Goes way down. That's expensive oil. Debt comes into greater and greater use, and debt has to be serviced. All of that reduces the EROI. Uh, that era terminated in 2008 with a bang. Oil prices skyrocketed to 147 bucks a barrel. We had the great financial crisis, and of course, after that, what is Big Brother's goal? Destroy the uh, entire global economy, starting with the idea of. Uh, Inexpensive oil. But guess what? Isn't it funny? They're still going to have their jets that run on diesel fuel, which is essentially Jet A, same thing, kerosene. Hmm. I guess the point is, if you got a jet and there are 100,000 or a million people working at uh, uh, slave wages, or maybe they're not working at all, but we don't care about them. They're just useless eaters. Well, who cares, right? Uh, the oil wells that are already dug will keep your jet flying, will keep your yacht running for a long, long time. And you got lots and lots of slave labor to keep things going after that.
So part of the understanding here is once the technology is developed, and this is, I think, part of the real uh, major bottom line for what I'm headed to, the powers that be, Big Brother, the deep state, the uh, world controllers, the banksters, you name it, those that print the money and can literally use the printed money to buy oil and then shut everyone else off from it because we want to kill them. We don't want competition for the oil that we need to run our yachts and our planes and our high-tech civilization, at least for the few of us. If you've seen The Hunger Games, that's one way of, of making the same point. It's not, in other words, that that, um, that high E-R-O-I oil has to be shared. The rest of you, well, we've got a plan for you. And it does, uh, it does involve the Club of Rome and limits to growth and similar things. But it's not, a, um, it's not something you want to think about too much. Now, as, um, uh, as I go there, I want to shift a bit. I'm looking at another article. And I've got to tell a quick story. Um, I mentioned that there was a... Um, uh, a particular economist that I read a number of years ago, and I was looking for that article. I do remember that I saw it on LouRockwell.com, I'm pretty sure. had to do with this concept of EROI, energy return on investment, and what was called energy density, too. And it's a related concept. In other words, not just um, how much energy, but how dense is the energy. In other words, uh, oil, for example, is a lot of BTUs in a small package. As a pilot, I was very familiar with the fact that um, if you ask, well, how much energy do you get for a given unit of weight? Because a plane, right, it has to lift the fuel off the ground. This is why electric airplanes tend to uh, not be particularly efficient. It's bad enough in a car, but you're still lugging around 3,000 pounds worth of batteries. You know what, folks? My entire airplane that I flew for 30 years uh, ran on um, basically uh, car gas, but it... Um, it weighed about 3,000 pounds, fully loaded gross weight. Well, the battery in, in your average EV weighs about that much. That makes for either a really big airplane or a plane that don't fly very far or doesn't even get off the ground. You get the point. turns out that uh, gasoline, uh, avgas, or car gas, is very high in terms of BTUs per pound. You know what's even better is uh, diesel for a... Um, for either jet fuel or whatever. So I actually at one point was thinking, oh, I would love to have a nice turbo diesel engine in my airplane because the same gas tank that would hold, uh, you know, uh, 800 miles worth of av gas or car gas to fly, I could put a diesel engine in the plane. It was more efficient, and there was more BTUs per pound in the diesel fuel, and that same plane would now fly 1,200 miles. Wow. That turns out to be a really big deal if you want to fly over, say, water or um, uh, a long distance over a jungle or something or go down to Central America and avoid having to stop at customs in Mexico. Anyway, a lot of reasons why over the years uh, yours truly has had some interest in looking at the numbers and understanding the mathematics of why these well, relatively obscure-sounding concepts really make a lot of sense because what works for flying also works for an entire civilization. All right, with that, I'm turning to a piece that I saw, and I'm not going to give the author's name here. Uh, I will mention where I saw this piece of BS. It was from an um, Institute on Energy and Man Population and Environment study called World Energy Production, Population Growth, and the Road to Olduvai Gorge. And that was an Olduvai theory a, um, defined by the ratio of world energy production to population. Oh, there's that um, 
elephant in the room again. It states that the life expectancy of industrial civilization is less than or equal to maybe a hundred years. 1932, uh-oh, 2030. See, no wonder they got to kill a lot of people. After more than a century of strong growth, energy production per capita peaked in 1979. Yes, peak oil. We've all heard about it. The Olduvai theory explains the subsequent decline. Moreover, it says that energy production per capita will fall to the 1930 value by 2030, thus giving industrial civilization this limited lifetime, 100 years or less. And this is called the, the bleak, um, you've heard of the Malthusian dilemma, a lot of uh, dismal economic kind of theories that say this is why we got to kill so many people. You just can't support population growth. Now, it turns out that uh, Malthus was wrong because technology, in fact, did outpace the growth in population. It gave people the ability to grow more food with less human labor and thus be able to develop other kinds of products and services and improve human lives and even find and develop better sources of energy. And the cycle continues, which takes us to the bottom of the hour break. So we'll pick it up there with the rest of the story right after this. When I think back on all the crap I learned in high school It's a wonder I can think at all And my lack of education hasn't hurt me none I can read the writing on the wall Welcome back now, folks, to the second segment of the show for this evening. I am your host, Mark Call. Today we're talking about um, some pretty, I would say, fascinating stuff. It fascinates me as an engineer. I hope you'll find it not only interesting, but really descriptive as far as an understanding of why so many things are going the way they are and why there are so many people in positions of power, the uh, New World Order, World Economic Forum, Biden Fuhrer, communist, uh, fascist, world controllers, banksters, so many people that want so many of us and so many of the world dead. Why they've been developing bioweapons, why they're destroying the power grid, why they're trying to get people into electric cars, because it's another dead end. So many things. Once you see the importance of energy, and therefore the reason why they want to destroy energy and prevent you from having it, a whole lot of stuff that sounds complicated becomes really straightforward and simple. Population growth is tied to easy, relatively inexpensive, high energy density, and the ability of people to use it. If you take that away, you go right back to the Stone Age. Now, that's the one thing that everybody agrees on, including the world controllers. The point is, they don't want them to go back to the Stone Age, but they want you to go back to the Stone Age. They're going to keep their jets and their high-tech and maybe their UFOs and whatever else they got planned that they'll roll out once eight or nine billion people or however many they have at the point where they roll it out are dead. Once we see this, so many pieces again begin to fall into place. Well, as we went to break, 
I was talking about um, just a little bit. I'm going to do about as much of this as I can stand. An article that has to do with the Olduvai Gorge, limits to growth and world energy and why we have to reduce not just population but energy because they go together. And um, Malthus, Thomas Malthus is a, you know, a famous economist. This is why uh, economics is sometimes called the dismal science because one of the things that um, – and by the way, Malthus turned out to have been wrong at least so far. About two centuries ago, his Malthusian dilemma said things are going in the dumper as population growth outstrips food. And it may be true, but it's not because the technology hasn't been available. It's because that those that have the technology are deciding to use it to kill off those who don't. Okay, back to this article. Oh, uh, one other quick counterpoint to this because there is a uh, – there's a Russian um, – Energy economist, I guess you'd say, uh, an astronomer and um, years ago named Kardashev. He came up with a hypothetical energy consumption understanding for not just a, um, a civilization, but an interstellar civilization. And he said, essentially, uh, you, can, you can measure the progress of an entire planet or civilization by how much energy they use. Well, he's talking about exactly what we're talking about today. And uh, ultimately, he referred to what he called a type one civilization. We're not there yet. And that would be a civilization that can use all the energy available on its entire home planet and store it and uh, use it to grow and to provide people and concepts and, and uh, products and all kinds of things. Well, uh, you get to a type 2 civilization. If you've ever heard the term Dyson sphere, there was a physicist named Dyson. Uh, he's passed a few years ago. I actually knew one of his relatives uh, uh, when I was a young engineer, and uh, it was kind of fascinating. But anyway, uh, I really uh, I really got a kick out of this fellow. The Dyson sphere was a concept he came up with and said if you could harness the output of an entire sun – that's what you do. You build a sphere around it to harness the entire energy output of an entire sun. Now that's the civilization that can really go places, right? And then there are even type 3 civilizations that Kardashev postulated that can harness energy output from galaxies and do all kinds of things with, you know, stellar evolution and black holes and physics that we can't even conceive of. The, the point is, on one hand, you've got people that are saying, we've got to kill lots of folks because we don't want them using energy. And on the other hand, you've got physicists and astronomers that are saying, oh, energy production is key to everything, we can imagine advanced civilizations that can use energy that we can't even conceive of. And guess what, folks? There's a big gap in between, and the gap involves at least where we're at now with a lot of banksters and world controllers planning to kill a whole lot of people that never will get to use any of that energy at all if they get their way. All right, back to this paper that is just one example of it. And uh, I started to introduce the um, the way I got here, and I think it's important here because I've, I've made several uh, references to what I call the BS of man-made global warming, climate change, carbon footprints, and all that crap. And you notice that's the kindest word I can come up with. Um, net zero, you've heard it all. It turns out that when I was looking for that article that I mentioned about um, EROI and energy density and a really positive output on understanding the connections between these things, and I did some searches online. I searched for energy density and EROI, and guess what? Uh, even with a better, uh, I use start page, um, there are some others out there, duck, duck, go, and so forth, but they basically still rely on the same evil engines like Gulag and Bing and so forth that are all pretty much controlled, and you never guess. Page after page after page after page of the stories that I got back were all crap. Uh, why it is that EROI is not good? Well, because of zero emissions, carbon footprint, CO2 control, um, how we have to have limits to growth, Club of Rome stuff. 
It was stunning to see the level of propaganda that came out and how hard it was to find anything that I was really looking for. Now, on the other hand, I did find this article about population and the environment. At least it serves as a, a nasty example. Again, the author says, the old divide theory states that the life expectancy of an industrial civilization, that would be us, or at least it used to be, equal to or less than 100 years. And uh, he said, uh, the theory has a long and distinguished history. He develops it from Greek philosophy, and uh, they, by the way, were equally... Uh, anti-human in a lot of respects, and of course pagan too, but that goes together. It's difficult or distressing, he says, for most people to accept, ah, unless you belong to the Club of Rome, just as it was for me. Here's the key. The old Olduvai, um, this is a place in uh, Tanzania, and some suggest um, that it might be uh, close to the original Garden of Eden, was and still is a sustainable way of life, local, tribal, and solar. In other words, they planted crops and the sun um caused them to grow. For better or worse, he says, our ancestors practice it for millions of years. No doubt this peak and decline of industrial sieve, should it occur, will be due to a complex matrix of causes. Listen to this and try to keep your feet up off the floor. Such as overpopulation, there's the great bugaboo, the depletion of non-renewable resources, environmental damage, pollution, soil erosion, global warming, booga, booga, booga. Uh, man-made, of course, they leave that part out. Uh, and it turns out that if the sun is going uh, downhill, folks, because of solar conditions, and I think that's a lot more likely, and that does seem to be the case, but we're not being told the truth there either. That's going to be a real problem because the sun is, in fact, the major driver of all life on the planet. Anyway, newly emerging diseases, he doesn't mention it, I will. Do you think they're being bioengineered? And resource wars. Anyway, the old divide theory uses a single metric. It's called White's Law, and um, I'll, I'll read it quickly. He, he quotes White's Law. Other factors remaining constant, culture evolves as the amount of energy harnessed per capita per year is increased. Now, that's kind of similar to EROI because per capita means per person, which is what? Person power. How much um, energy can a person eat and use with the labor of their hands or now their brains? What kind of return on investment do they get, both energy and capital? Or as the efficiency of their instrumental means of putting the energy to work is increased? Yeah, there's capital. We may sketch the history of cultural development from this standpoint. Okay, well, White's law is consistent with what I've been talking about, um, not just the Kardashev scale, but EROI too. But back to the author here. I now foresee a calamitous trigger event that will bring about the end of industrial civilization. Ready? Think about this. The declining reliability of electric power grids. Now, isn't that funny? Because some of us, that would include your host, has suggested that uh, the power grids could have been made more reliable. But instead, uh, what are we doing? Well, let's just waste money killing people in other places and letting invaders come in across the borders, destroying our own infrastructure, destroying pipelines, not investing in anything that's useful, and keeping the power grids vulnerable to EMP and the solar events and CMEs, and, of course, just cyber attacks, too, and terrorism. Oh, yeah, we're importing them by the, the declining reliability of electric power grids, folks, is deliberate. Do I have to emphasize it? I think that's key. Oh, let me add one more. Real kicker here. How about if you said, okay, the grid is getting ready to fail, and we don't have enough power to run existing stuff that we've got already. What are we going to do? We're going to say to people in New York, for example, because, well, maybe some of them just aren't that sharp, you can't have natural gas or LP-fired uh, stoves or water heaters or house heaters anymore or oil heaters. Now we're going to put you all on an electric grid. Ha, ha, ha. What you don't know is when the grid goes down, you're going to freeze. You won't be able to cook your food either. 
And isn't it funny? They're destroying the electric grid by saying, well, we don't want coal-fired power plants. We don't want natural gas-fired power plants. We don't want oil-fired power plants. And uh, we're okay with geothermal, but let's talk about water. Well, we're getting rid of dams and, and that kind of stuff. Not rep- What you're seeing, folks, is that they're trying to destroy the electric grid. Well, I've said that, but wait a minute. There's one other element, and I won't belabor this because I've talked about it a lot lately. I actually considered starting the, the show off with this. EVs. One of the biggest piles of manure you'll ever find. Now, are there some advantages in certain specific places? Sure. With any technology, there are, there are places where it's useful. Let's suppose you're in a tunnel underground and you don't want to uh, breathe exhaust gases. Well, an EV or a golf cart uh, might be useful. Look and see what they drive around places like CERN. But um, not necessarily if you expect to be able to put all the people in California, say, on EVs because they're already having brownouts. Turns out that an EV, one EV, to go and use it the way the average consumer does it and then recharge the battery, one EV uses the equivalent of, depending upon whose numbers you believe, many houses. Ten, a dozen, fifteen. That's entire houses just to charge the thing. Well, the easy answer is they can't, they can't charge the EVs that are already in California. They want people to buy more of them. Ha <laughs> ha! Guess what? They're not telling you this. You ain't going to go anywhere because you won't be able to charge them. Forget the fact that they have no range and you can't go anywhere in the winter because if you run the heater, it doesn't go to grandma's and back. Or in the summer, if you run the air conditioning, you ain't getting home either. No, there's this. The average EV, if it weren't for the subsidies that Big Brother's putting in place to try to get you to be, you know, buy that pig in the poke, the average EV would have to be, um, owner would pay the equivalent of 17 bucks plus per gallon of gas. And that doesn't include the hundreds of billions more in subsidies for the Inflation Reduction Act and other kinds of things. In other words, the entire EV thing is not just a scam. It is a deliberate attempt to destroy the electric power grid. They can't handle the grid now, and so let's put more EVs on it. What they are not telling you is you're not supposed to be able to go anywhere anyway. But if you do, and we let you charge your, your EV, say, once a week or once a month, if you're a good little slave, your social credit score is high, um, it's going to cost a fortune. And um, you won't be able to go very far, and uh, we're going to be able to control if and when you go. That's the real key. We control everything. Now, here was a, here's a piece from, of all places, I saw this during that same search because they're pushing this too. University of California telling me how wonderful EVs are at solving the problems. A central goal of the Biden regime is the construction of 500,000 new EV charging stations. There won't be anything to actually charge them with because power grid won't handle it. And how are you going to get there? Well, you could build uh, hundreds of new nuclear power plants. Oh, no, not going to talk about that. Uh, how about uh, how many windmills? Well, uh, you don't have enough land. You don't have enough uh, steel and carbon fibers to make the windmills, enough people to maintain them. That's another loser. But 500,000 new EV charging stations. You ready for this? Here's the damning factoid. For perspective, University of California study even admits this. There are about, currently, less than 150,000 gas stations in the entire United States. Now, gas stations, folks, will fuel a bunch of cars per hour, not one car in several hours, or with super high power stations and great big, you know, uh, copper wires the size of your arm and uh, power grids that won't provide that kind of power anyway. You see the point here? This is the reason why you will not hear these people talk about numbers, because the numbers are damning. The numbers simply say the EROI, the ability to produce, it ain't there. What they aren't telling you? 
The numbers don't lie when it comes to population versus energy. If we can destroy the energy, you can't produce the fertilizer, you can't produce the food, you can't harvest the crops, you can't ship the crops, you can't ship steel from overseas on uh, uh, what? Not coal-fired, diesel-fired trains or planes or automobiles or even uh, tankers. Things run down. But not if you've got your own jet and you can afford to uh, hire a small army and give them a little bit of subsistence food. Otherwise, they starve to death like the rest of the peons. There is no doubt about it. When you begin to connect the dots and see how this thing plays out, uh, the intent here is clear. And that is part of the reason why I'm, I'm talking about all this. Uh, back to this story, and then we'll move on. Um, oil and liquid oil, says the author of this uh Energy and civilization story. Uh, oil is liquid and portable. It has high energy density. It's the primary source of energy for industrial civilization. But he then goes into page after page of uh, oil production and how it peaked in uh, uh, various, depending upon whether you talk about per capita or uh, per unit of measure, uh, 1979 or in uh, early 2000s. And uh, as a result, then what? Well, something's got to break, and uh, we'd rather it be the people than um, our ability to uh, continue controlling them. All primary sources of energy are important, says the author, but the old divide theory identifies electricity as the quintessential end-use energy of industrial civilization. In other words, they use oil to produce electricity and ship it with wires. Has you know goes fast, and wires are relatively cheap, cheaper than building pipelines or shipping it by rail. And you can put it all over the place. Um, but it's declined. It decreased from 1979 to 1999 at what was called the Old Divide Slope, uh, about a third of a percent per year. And that means it's going to keep doing that, they say. So governments have lost respect. Uh, when the power goes out, and this is the ha-ha chuckle, we've got you moment, you're back in the dark ages. So concludes the author, and this is uh, disgusting, folks, but it's the way they think. If God made the earth for man, well, he made it for Stone Age man. And that's the goal. Some of us will live in the uh, modern era, and the rest of you are going back to the Stone Age, if you manage to live at all. Surprise, surprise. So we've talked about so many elements of all of this. I want to mention about uh, two minutes worth of other uh, things that, as an engineer, have fascinated me over the years. Don't have time, and I, I thought about doing a uh, – maybe someday if there's interest, let me know. Uh, I will. But um, there are energy sources. Everybody's heard about the 250-mile-per-gallon mile carburetors and so forth. Uh, the point is, no, if there was such a thing – and I don't know if it really existed or not. Everybody's heard these stories then you couldn't have it, and that is the point of all the stories. I do remember when Pons and Fleischmann came up with what was called palladium-based uh, hydrogen cold fusion. Back while I was still a relatively young engineer a number of years ago, I uh, actually knew several engineers that worked on the project, and uh, including a, a research project at IBM. And um, guess what? Uh, last I heard from that individual, we, we maintained communications for several years before we each moved on. He said, Mark, I don't know exactly what this process is that's going on here, but let me tell you, it's something. We've identified it. It's real. We don't necessarily know all of what's going on yet, but there is something here, and it is amazing. Um, there are some other names that you may have heard. I remember Eugene Malik. Uh, there was a magazine I subscribed to for years, followed the research, Cold Fusion, LNR, Low Energy uh, Nuclear Reactions. And, and so forth, um, that essentially said, wow, whatever is going on, this is fascinating. It has the potential to revolutionize civilization. It would be an even higher energy return on investment, far higher than anything. And I remember just being stunned at the math and the implications of what that would do. Well, guess what? What it would do mostly? 
It would make cheap energy available to people, well, like, for example, those of us that are off-grid. Imagine not even having to have but a few solar panels and being able to do everything you want to do. Smelt oil or smelt uh, steel if you need to. Um, things that we don't normally do now because they require a kill or huge amounts of energy. Hmm. Well, what it would also do is enable a population boom. Oh, we can't have that. So um, do you think just maybe they kill some people and suppress the stuff? I can't prove that, but I certainly think the mathematics inclines me to believe that that's the case. All right, so where does that leave us as we look at all of this, and, and what are the implications? Well, I think one of them is kind of clear. What I encourage people to be able to do is to, uh, well, a scripture tells us, uh, be able to give an account for the hope that's within us. Be able to explain to people why we believe what we believe and why we understand uh is going on, and what does it mean? Well, the Bible talks about all kinds of things associated with the end times and elements that end up with the what the mark of the beast and uh, wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not deceived. All of that kind of stuff. I think most of us are familiar with. But where I want to uh, kind of wrap it today is to look at the implications of simple concepts. Once we understand them, of EROI, energy return on investment, and what it means both for a civilization. And for those that are trying to destroy that civilization and those that hope to be able to live through it, to uh, stand, having done all to stand, to um, be overcomers and to um, well, prepare the way for what lies ahead. So however that plays out, it's vital that we understand energy and the importance of it. So think of it this way. If they succeed in destroying the power grid and you're located in a place where you don't have any other energy sources, sorry, Charlie or uh, Charlotte, you're probably dead because people will come. Oh, yes, they'll take your stuff. They'll kill you. They may eat you and all that kind of jazz. There are plenty of uh, terrorists already in place, and uh, we understand if we've been following the news, all of those aspects to it. But the real kicker is just think about energy from a individual standpoint. And this, after you begin to live off-grid for a while and understand how much work it takes to grow crops, Right, you've got to plant the crops. You've got to uh, harvest the crops. And by the way, in, the, in between, you've got to water them and provide some kind of fertilizer, organic or whatever the case may be. Uh, your choice on that score. But you still got to give them food to eat, so that later you'll have food to eat. You've got to weed them. All of this requires work. Requires either people power or energy. If you've got a backhoe or a farm tractor and some implements, you can do a lot of it using diesel fuel. But what happens when the diesel is not pumped from the ground or refined at the refineries anymore and they won't let you ship it and it doesn't come on the trucks? Ooh, that's a world of hurt. So I encourage folks, think through the implications of the fact that they want to cut you off. Oh, yeah, they want to starve you. They don't want you to have food or water. But even if you have some of those kinds of things, how long can you live on what you've got stored up? you got two years of food stored up. Can you defend it during the time? Do you have enough manpower to defend it? We talk about those things all the time. But I'm suggesting that for longer-term endurance, it's important that we remember you still have to stay warm. And, uh, yeah, if you live in a cold climate, um, that's important. If you live in a hot climate, well, you, you still have to stay cool, and you have to be able to do different things. But all of these are elements that one way or the other. I have people tell me, oh, I live in Tucson. That's great. Well, you're going to die in July because if you, if you can't uh, handle living where it's 120 degrees and you don't have air conditioning because there's no power grid, uh, there may be a problem there. I know that people die every year in places like St. Louis where we had 100 degrees and 100% humidity. 
So it's not just keeping warm in the winter. There are all kinds of elements, but guess what? They all require energy and an understanding of energy. So uh, I've already suggested elements of this. I want to try to connect some dots here in the last couple of minutes. I, uh, I believe that a backhoe is an important tool. A backhoe enables me to do the work of, like I said, 50 men. That doesn't help me weed a garden, if you think about it. But at least when it comes to doing things that, uh, for example, uh, digging a trench that might be useful for, what, building a wall or uh, preparing some ground, there are lots of things that require a lot of energy. But, hey, I can store 500 or 1,000 gallons of diesel fuel. It turns out it's not that hard. It's a hell of a lot easier than trying to store even remotely the equivalent of electrical energy. Well, with one exception, I can buy solar panels. They don't really so much store energy as they produce electricity from the energy that, if you think about it, is already stored up in terms of the silicon and the metal and the wires and the junctions that are there in those solar panels that will produce energy from the sun over 20 years, maybe. So all of those things are kind of like stored energy. What I'm suggesting is you'd better think about that. It's not enough to have stored food or stored water. You need to deal with what they have got planned for you. And that is if they cut off your food and water and make you eat bugs, well, and you don't have the ability to do that or they don't have, you don't have the mark of the beast, a lot of people are going to die right away. But for the rest of us, we have to continue to plan for even a bit longer and an understanding of, um, well, up until he returns, we got some things we need to be able to get through. So again, at best, or maybe at worst, what I'm hoping that the folks will do is think about energy and energy return on investment. And in this case, at the local level, at the individual level, that's your energy. How much time and energy do you have to simply plan for the future? And I know a lot of folks say, well, I don't have the money to do what I need to do now. Well, in that case, you had better get with like-minded folks. You better get to a place where other people can help you because if you're in the city – well, sorry, again, it's over when the bad stuff happens. The other thing, of course, is if you understand energy return on investment and how this correlation with population explains pretty much everything that Big Brother and the uh, Club of Rome and the banksters and the World Economic Forum and the Klaus Schwabs and the world controllers want to accomplish, it's all about cutting off your energy and ultimately cutting off your lives. Eating bugs isn't the worst of it, in other words. So when you put it all together, folks, it's not important that you uh, know who you serve. That's a given. But remember, the Bible in Hosea says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And I'll contend that that includes a number of things, part of which is just understanding the simple math so you can begin to see really how evil some of these plans are and what we need to do to be preparing for it, to be ready for it, given what we know is coming. And again, it's helpful to be able to connect all of the dots because once you see it, not only do you understand why what's happening is happening, but what we need to do about it individually and on a larger scale because it really is a matter of life and death. 